Welcome. My name is Matt McGill. I am a pastor down here at Bethel Bible. And um, struggling with a stand. Here we go. Truth be told, I thought there was going to be a prayer right there. I thought this morning, what would be a way to be grounded before I begin? What would be a way for me to calm myself? Because truly, it's, um, it's that I care too much about what you think of me that could prevent me uh, from telling you the truth this morning in the fullness of the power of God. I want to be grounded. I want to remind myself, first and foremost, of a few things. That I stand here, or sit here as the case may be, in the power of another. Sometimes in the dark. <laughs> but I stand here in the power of not just myself, but the power of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of my marriage. You may see one, but truly there are two here. I stand here in the power of my marriage to Megan that has been, has come at a great cost to her, a great cost to me. And I stand here in the power of the life of my children that has come at a great cost to them and a great gain to me in some ways. I have failed forward through life in the grace of God. And so I stand here in a power that is beyond me. I stand here or sit here in the power of those that I love the power of those that I love in this church body. I stand here and I have something to share with you that you already have within you. I'm just here to remind you of that this morning. We are looking at Mark 1, and before we do, I just wanted to be grounded in the power that I actually have, the power of the Word of God, the power of Jesus. And that's what we're going to learn today again. That's what we're going to remember and recognize again today is the power of of the word of God made known to man. Yes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning that you have gone before us all, making a way for us that we might be heard by you and that we might hear from you, Lord. We thank you for your son's body broken, that we might be made whole. We thank you that we can feed again and again on the everlasting word of your Son made flesh and your everlasting word made text to us as we approach your word. May we do so with humility, gleaning from it all that you would bring forth. By the power of your Spirit and in the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm calling this the King, the Kingdom, and the Crisis. We're looking at Mark 1, we're finishing, we're going to finish up, Lord willing, Mark 1 today. It's a lot of verses, but hang with me because I believe that we can do it efficiently. It's going to start with verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, I want to start with this first verse here. Now John was arrested. Now we know John the Baptist came forth preparing the way of the Lord and doing so 
by, promise, by, by, by delivering people into the power of repentance. You know, if you don't turn around, if you don't recognize that you need something, that you lack something, that you've gone astray, if you don't turn, you can't, you're not prepared for the gospel. And I call it the baton pass of history because John, it was said of John, this was Jesus' cousin and the son of Zechariah, the Levitical priest who was in his duty, Zechariah, this is John's father, was to keep the incense going in the temple. Do you know what incense does? I love incense personally. It flows through the air into your nostrils and you realize, wow, I have breath. I can breathe more deeply than I realized. I am more sensitive than I realized. It delivers you to a sensitivity. Wake up. Wake up. Allow your senses to remember the power of God, the ruach of God, the spirit of God. This is what John's father, Zechariah, did as a Levitical priest. But John left. John was called out to leave the temple, to leave the powers of of uh, the, the, the spaces of power in the temple to come out into the wilderness. We heard about this last week. He was saying, leave that and come out here and repent. And there's Jesus. He says to Jesus, I must decrease that he may increase. So I want to say to you this morning, here comes the increase. This is the increase. As John literally decreased, we know he was arrested and soon he would have his head literally cut off now we say that, I would say that John was, as Jesus said of him, there has never been a greater man born of woman than John the Baptist. That he represents the power of repentance, pure religion, religion to tie back to God. John is saying, turn away, come out, be cleansed, and prepare the way for the Lord. You cannot prepare the way for the Lord unless you recognize how much resistance is in you to the truth of God. I call John pure religion, the purest religion that could be, and yet it wasn't enough. Among men, not a greater man born. He was high born of the Levitical priesthood, but he left that and moved out into the wilderness, and he made the way for what I call pure relationship. John, pure religion. Jesus, pure relationship. The fulfillment of all that had been prepared by religion. But now this religion is no more, and pure relationship exists if you will believe. If you will believe, you may have. You are granted by the power of God in Jesus Christ, pure relationship with God your whole life long. John was repentance. John preached repentance. He was repentance personified, and yet repentance was being arrested. And here comes the power of preaching. So why was this John? Why was this Elijah, this one who was foretold to come? It was said of him that he would return the hearts of their sons to the hearts of their fathers and vice versa. This collective posture of John and his followers ultimately gets John killed, decapitated. But, he's, but, he's, but it's almost symbolic that his head was cut off because religion is not the head. Christ is the head. So as John was decreased, literally and figuratively, Jesus' time to come forth in power of preaching is now. And as we look at Mark, we're going to see that. We're going to see the way that repentance and power, repentance and relationship work together, law and gospel. It's like 
Frank Sinatra's love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like a horse and carriage. You can't have one without the other, you see? That's what we're going to learn, that John, pure religion, makes the way for pure relationship in Jesus. God empowers your repentance. This is a truth this morning. I don't really do. I'm going to weave in applications as we go. I'm not going to give you five or six things at the end. That's a fine method, but I'm just going to talk through it. And now I want to say that one of the truths is that God empowers your repentance and prepares you to receive the gospel. Without a posture that facilitates repentance, you are missing Jesus in your life. You're established. I'm going to say this also, that John is threatening the establishment, isn't he? They can't have it. It's too upsetting. We like things the way they are. We like things the way they have been. And John, the son of the high, one of the, high, one of the priests, leaves it all, goes out, and says, that's dead. Religion is dead. It's all calloused and hardened. We're keeping the people that need God out. We've got to come out and repent and prepare the way of the Lord. But I want to say this. You have an establishment. You have established your own ways. I have established my own ways. And there must come upheaval. Your establishment, another truth, your establishment is already dead. And the real threat to your current life is always life in Jesus. Do you realize that something needs to be sifted in you? I have come through a time where I needed sifting. I needed things to be turned over. I had become attached Attached to the good things in my life. Attached to these things that I thought could bring me life that were bringing me death. They were literally sucking the life out of me and I needed revival. Do you need revival this morning? If you don't need revival, you don't get revival. Do you understand? If you don't need it, he didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. You've got to understand that your establishment is already dead. And the real threat to your establishment always his life of the life of Jesus. There's a crisis. I remember I said, king, kingdom, crisis. You, me, we have a crisis. I want to define crisis, or rather let Webster define crisis. A time of great danger, difficulty, or doubt, when problems must be solved or important decisions must be made. So the big idea this morning is that the call of God equips us to endure the cross or the crises, the crisis in our life. Now, we're going to start out now again with uh, the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Remember, he's come out of the wilderness. Another truth this morning is that ministry is always preceded by wilderness don't you know that in your life? Oh, wow, how did we make it through that? And yet, God was present to us. Surely God was in this place and I did not know it. Ah, oh, it was the worst time of my life and yet it turns out God was in it. Teaching me and bringing forth new life from the cross, the crisis that I endured. That's the power of God in what looks like the absence of God. So, the truth we will go forth with, with uh, Mark 1 here, I believe this is the beginning now, 16, I think it is, 15 maybe, is that Jesus' ministry involves us. 
So at the very beginning of his ministry, here we go. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Do you get this? This is Mark. Remember, 42 times we use, hear the word immediately. Things are going to start moving fast now. I can move fast. Stick, stick with me. These disciples were born to be called by Jesus. Do you believe that you were born to be called by Jesus? It's hard for us now to look back and think about these people not really realizing what radical change was about to come upon them. Both the synoptic, the synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, tell nearly the exactly the same story. He calls them at once they leave their nets. But Luke tells another story, and I think it might be helpful. That is that they were fishing all night, these brothers. They were fishing all night. Why were they fishing at night? Apparently, the retina of the fish were such that they came closer to the surface at night so that they could see. And during the day, you had to have a super long net to keep to get deep down enough to reach the fish. So if you really needed to catch fish, if you really, perhaps your very livelihood depended on it, if you really needed to catch fish, you'd go out at night. And they came in after a night's worth of fishing with empty nets. These two brothers were the down and out. They were fishermen, but either they weren't very good fishermen or they weren't very lucky fishermen. Remember what Jesus says, cast them over onto the other side. And then they cast them up and they filled to the, to the point of breaking. And at that point, what do they say? They don't say, hey, Jesus, stay with us. Stay with us so our, fish will, our nets will always be full. They say, the power of God is with this guy. Wherever you go, we're going. You see, fishing becomes, who cares? I don't want fish. I want power. I want I want the power of God. I want to be close to the power of God. So they left him immediately, these down and out. Repent, because to believe is to follow. To repent is to follow. They left their old lives. Now, when he says, when he says uh, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Fisher of men. I mean, let's say first off that Jesus' word is causative. When Jesus says, follow me, you follow him. It is what is, it's what happens. His word is causative. Now, this is not like a Jedi mind trick. You know this? We don't have the droids you're looking for. That's deception, okay? This is, I have the power, you will follow, and they follow. These are two down-and-out brothers who could be in the throes of financial disaster who say, we don't want to have financial prosperity we just want power. We came close. We follow this Jesus. By the way, I should also say, this is a rabbi who goes out to call. Rabbis don't go out to call. Rabbis sit in wherever they sit in their rabbi house, and people say, would you please accept me? Please, rabbi, please accept me. Please accept my, my son. Please. He's, he's got all these credits. This rabbi goes out to people who are fishermen who have no chance of ever being, maybe don't even care about being rabbis, certainly don't have the breeding to be rabbis. These, these are just fishermen, and at that, not real good fishermen. And yet when he calls, they follow, and here we go. 
The first crisis I want to talk about is Peter and Andrew's crisis. It's no crisis really at all. They're down and out. Jesus calls them. And so here's it is. A life of catching nothing or a life glorifying God and winning souls to the love of Christ. Well, that's a crisis that God's very spirit empowers them to live into. And we know that Peter, this first pope of the church, becomes something other than he was, doesn't he? And that's what we want. Okay, so now, interesting too, by the way, that the first two uh, people he calls are not two, but four. Two sets of brothers. I told one of my brothers, Travis Squires, I said to him, you need people in your life that know the worst of you best. You need people in your life that know the worst of you best for the rest of your life. Your brothers probably know the worst of you. You probably poured it out on them. Uh, maybe they poured it out on you. But I think it's interesting that these two brothers are called and they know from whence they came. They know where we came from. And yet they are being extracted out somehow of their family of origin and into the family of God. Don't we need that? If there's a generational curse on, upon, on us all, that the, the sins of the fathers are handed down to the, sin, uh, to the sons, to the fourth and fifth generations, don't we each of us need to be somehow extracted from our family of origin and into the family of God? That's where there's hope. That's where there's power. That's where the Holy Spirit binds us and empowers us. So here's another two brothers. And going on a little farther, he saw James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. I want to say this is another truth, that Jesus' calling is not dependent on your stage in life. Hear me, young people. Hear me, young people. It is not dependent on your stage in life. Jesus is calling you. Jesus is calling you. These, these guys were preparing their nets. These were young guys. We know that Peter, and Peter was the oldest of the disciples. And by the way, the average life expectancy was about 45, maybe 50. So when he came to Peter, Peter could be in a midlife crisis. I'm 45. I will likely live to 90. I have pretty good genes, but I am in the middle of an upheaval. I'm in the middle of my own midlife crisis. So was perhaps Peter. And Peter's called out. With his brother, now we have two younger. John, we know, was the youngest. And they were preparing their nets. And by the way, to have hired men like their father had was a sign that they were very wealthy. Things were going well. They were the up and coming. They had lots to look forward to. And by the way, with hired men, they were probably catching all sorts of fish. And yet when Jesus comes and calls, they follow. So we have the down and out and the up and coming. And both are extracted. And where do James and John leave their father? In his boat with his hired men. Okay, guys, please understand. Please understand that he's after you. Not only the poor or rich you, not the young or old vision of you, you. Okay? When Jesus calls you, your father can do his own bidding. They leave him with the hired men. Men of means tend to protect their wealth by roping their children into the whole mess. And that makes sense, doesn't it? That a father would rope his son into the wealth. Let's protect it. Let's plan for the generations ahead. And yet, 
Is that a curse? Maybe so. Maybe, and let me submit this to you men, maybe some of you, no matter how old you are, are still in the boat with your fathers. I'll just leave that with you. If you're living life in a contract with your father, whether literally, figuratively, emotionally, spiritually, with all due respect, you might not be as alive in Christ as you think you are. Maybe he's calling you today. Idle alert, idle alert. There are those who have succumbed to a familial religion. <laughs> and those, that, those, that, those familial religions demand obedience. And only the call of Jesus can extricate you from that. John and James had a crisis. Should we live a life catching everything only to watch it pass through our hands? <laughs> or should we live a life glorifying God and winning souls to the love of Christ? Well, we see when he calls, they follow. Second crisis. Okay, so let's, go, let's move on. Again, we're, we're popping through. Now he's got these two sets of brothers, and what do they do immediately? They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet. Jesus said sternly, come out of him. The impure spirit shook and the man violently, the sh shook the man violently and he came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Remember, this is a king, his kingdom, and a crisis. Religious leaders, the authority is over there. Go over there and pay your dues. Go over there and clean yourself. Go over there and kill a bull. Go over there. It's always over there. It's if-then conditionality. If you do this, then you'll have this. And what does Jesus come and say? I am. The power is here. It's all here. And when you tell somebody that the power is somewhere completely opposite of where they have built their life thinking the power is, you will see an impure spirit come forth. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm talking about? That our hearts are idol factories and we become so taken with what we believe life is, what we believe is the track to God, what we believe will, will give us, what, what is that word? Is it, transcendence. What we, will, what we believe will bring us life. And he comes in and says, no. Life is here. And this evil spirit speaks. Do you realize that you will often feel compelled to resist the truth when it comes your way if it threatens your status quo? Why? Because you too can have an impure spirit. Do you believe that? You too can have an impure spirit. In fact, unless you are filled with the Holy Spirit, your spirit is always kind of impure. Religion 
religion, hear me this morning, religion will drive you insane and it will bring forth the evil spirits and it will bring forth enmity and hostility between you and everyone else. Religion was driving people insane and keeping them in bondage and Jesus knew that. The good thing that God, had, that God had created, a pathway that would usher forth Jesus, was now only twisted, only rotten. Jesus says, no more, I am. What do you want with us? Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Let's put up what it says. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Who's speaking here? The spirit. And what, is this, what does this impure spirit know? He knows that there is a threat. There is a real existential threat to his existence and proliferation within these temples where these religious people had set up their power structures. And he says, what do you want with us? Remember, this is one of their own. This is a man from inside the synagogue seeking God in all the ways that men seek God. And all that's threatened. His knees are taken out. What do you want with us? It's a rhetorical question. This impure spirit knows exactly what Christ has come to do, and that is to destroy religion. To destroy religion that keeps children of wrath condemned. You can't save yourself with position, passion, or possession. Life under the law is no life at all. Think about it. A supermodel, horribly disfigured in a wreck, wakes up to see her face. Ah! Shrieks, right? A major league pitcher who finally throws out his rotator cuff at the height of his career. Ah! You know what I mean? I mean, this is existential crisis. All that I built my life on is no more. What do I do? Turn to Jesus. He is the king of your crisis, and in his sovereignty, he creates your crisis that you will come to him. The synagogue crowd has a crisis because there is a new sheriff in town. And he's not a sheriff of law, he's a sheriff of grace. And the grace that obliterates law. A life, this is the synagogue crowd's crisis, okay? This is the religious crowd's crisis. Do you want a life of reaching for God? Reaching for God as if he's somewhere else? And when you do, that will dehumanize you and bring hostility between those you say you love? Do you want a life of religion where every day you have to get up and do it again? Or do you want a life glorifying God by receiving in full the new covenant and the power to let go of the presumed power of the old covenant? See, you have a presumed power of religion. You think Because you still have impure spirits. I still have impure spirits. I have just recently rediscovered impure spirits. I am now in the midst of revival because I did recognize these things. The presumed power of the old covenant. That covenant is, that, that power is no more because there is a new covenant that has released us from the bondage of the law. Verse 20, we move on. Remember, Jesus is on the move. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Now, I want to say to you, I would like to believe that the first person I would take Jesus to is my mother-in-law. 
She's watching online. I, I might not, but I hope that I would, especially if she had a fever. But let's be honest. By the way, that, that, that laugh to my, to my flesh felt kind of good. I'm going to push that down and not try to be a funny guy because when I try to be a funny guy, things go horribly awry. Okay? Stop laughing. <laughs> right away, Simon's mother-in-law was a big deal. <laughs> right? We've seen what you can do. You can speak to the physical You're not just telling us that you have a spiritual solution to our predicament in the synagogue, but when you present that spiritual solution, the synagogue freaks out, you discover an impure spirit, and then you can speak physically to draw it out. Now we realize that you are God of heaven and earth. The dual reality of Christ, that he is both God and man. We can look in his face as a man and hear from God. And by the Holy Spirit, we can look in one another's face and hear from God. Immediately, these men, these boys, had an epinosis, an experiential knowledge of the power of God. And they they were hungry for more. Jesus has, and he knows it, he does not withhold his presence from the need of women. He does not withhold his presence and his healing from the need of women. Remember the rabbis of the day? Thank God I'm not a slave, that I'm not a woman, and that I'm not a Gentile. Here's Jesus at the beginning of his ministry tending to the need of those that were helpless and harassed in that context. And can I submit to you, it exists to this day. The old kingdom is every bit as much alive as it was then. It's just that by the blood of Jesus, we have new kingdom power to bring to life dead things, even our relationships, men, between us and women. Seek it. See it. Jesus is doing something in us, through us. The average life expectancy was around 30 to 35 years. I don't think, was I? Similar to the lifespan of those in classical Rome, Peter was likely in his early 20s, which means his mother-in-law was practically knocking on heaven's door. She was as good as dead, perhaps, with this fever. But Jesus, young or old, right away we see that it is no ordinary rabbi. He gives life. Here's the truth. What happens when Jesus heals you? You get up and you start serving. Do you see, to be healed is to become instantly others-focused. To be instantly concerned, I got so much, have some. There, I have so much that I'll never need, I'll never need again. And I can live a life of giving. I can live a life of overflowing. I can live a life of abundance. Peter's mother-in-law's crisis was no crisis at all, really. Carry on in death, probably die. Or live a life glorifying God and serving Christ and Christ's body, which is one and the same. You know, there's a long-standing um, uh, frustration among uh, commentary, uh, commentary Commentarians? I'm going with that. Uh, that's that where, where it says, something, it said he, she, he healed her and she got up and started serving him in two gospels. But in one gospel it says, and she got up and started serving them. Do you know that Christ blurs the distinctions between him and them? Because when you serve one another, you serve God. When you serve one another, you glorify God. Now I want to say, and this is key, if you find yourself not serving people, not serving people with some regularity, please, please don't start serving people. 
invite Jesus in for healing. And then you won't be able to not serve. You see, don't start getting your religious wheels worked up trying to do something to spin up some power that Jesus has already given. Let him heal you and then begin the overflow. That evening, this is 22, that evening after sunset, remember, this is not later on in the week, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all of the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So here it is, after dark. And by the way, you had to wait till dark uh, to, to actually uh, come for healing with God because uh, let's just say they weren't allowing any of these people in the synagogues. The places where God was supposed to exist, those places were cut off to the people that actually realized that they needed God. And now here's Jesus, come one, come all. Sidebar, you wonder if at the temple uh, that Jesus, uh, let, let, me, let me cut that out, I gotta let go of that. A micro healing can begin a macro healing. A micro healing can begin a macro healing. If Jesus heals you, he can begin to heal the whole city. The whole city comes to Jesus at this point. And by the way, I would also say, your demons know who Jesus is too. Use his name. Use his name. That is the name of power because he has the power when you do not. This helpless and harassed crowd's crisis, a life of the same sickness that cuts you off from God or a radical re-education on the source of all healing in Jesus Christ. Notice, he says he does not heal all. It says many were healed. I want to be among the many, don't you? I want to be among the many, the many who believed. Okay, let's keep on going. Jesus prays then in a solitary place. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. What are you doing here, Jesus, over in the, by yourself? Look at all these people. Jesus has already been through the wilderness where Satan tempted him, tempted him to, to leverage his power to become famous. These down and out, especially Peter here, who's looking for power. Remember, they don't have the Holy Spirit in a way. They're still just caught up in the power of Christ, but they don't really understand what all is going down. So we get this litany of all these failures of Peter's. Oh, he doesn't really get it. And yet Jesus is merciful because he uses sinners for ministry. Peter almost seems to say, what in the world are you doing? We should be taking advantage of all this demand. This will get him called Satan later on, by the way. (laughs) Jesus knows this kind of thirst for fame and fortune and leveraging of good for the personal gain. He's already overcome it, and his kingdom will have none of it. So now we have a dual crisis, I I would say. Christ's crisis, a life-serving God apart from God. That is to say, I don't need to find a solitary place because I got God. Remember, he did not equate quality with God, a thing to be grasped, but rather lowered himself, became a servant. And a servant is a learner. A servant understands that he serves in the power of another, finds a solitary place, reconnects to the source of his power that he can then go back in to overflow. 
In the end, as a man, he entered into our crisis, but there was never a question of his obedience. This verse shows that. This disciple's crisis is this. Now that we're with God, will we trust him in all his ways and timing or will we doubt him in all his ways and timing? That's the same crisis for us today. Will we trust him in all of his ways and in his perfect timing or will we doubt him in his perfect ways and perfect timing? Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. The word of God made flesh must articulate the word. And he says what? This is why I have come, to preach the gospel, the announcement that God is here and it's in me. His very life is an announcement. His very life is the good news, the gospel, the gospel. So there's a synagogue crisis. Remember, he continues to preach in the synagogues, these places where they think they have the path to God figured out. This is the synagogue crisis and everyone who is a part of it. The proliferation of death or receptivity to the new covenant and freedom from the bondage to the old. Cut off from God, we fall prey to demons. Synagogues were cutting people off from God. And here's a perfect example. This is the final portion of our scripture today. In case someone's getting hungry, remember that man does not live by bread alone. <laughs> a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched that man. By the way, can we say, why was Jesus indignant? It wasn't at the man. It was at the very idea that the Son of God might withhold healing. And that very idea was something that these synagogues, these people under the law were baking in to everyone. That he might not be willing to heal me. That God might not be willing to give all that he has. And Jesus, again, will have none of it. Leprosy, this condition of the nervous system, not only cut people off from their own sensitivity, but it cut people off from the sensitivity of the others. They were not allowed. They had to call, what, 15 feet away, five feet, who cares how much, six inches social. These were the original social distancers. We can't get close to anybody because we're sick and we might get somebody else sick. We can't go to church. We can't go to the place of healing. We're cut off from healing. Oh, Lord, would you, would you please, would you maybe be willing He's indignant. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched. Second time he touches. First he touches Peter's mother who was sick, which would have been actually ceremonially unclean and a rabbi wouldn't have touched. He touches Peter's mother. Now he's touching the leprosy. He's touching the leprosy. It's like, you got COVID? Come give me a big hug. You know what I mean? He's not scared of this world because he has power over it. This, is, uh, this man is not only healed, but he's loved and affirmed. You see, Jesus doesn't just, doesn't just call his sickness healed. He touches him. Do you touch people anymore? Maybe you should. He's healed and not just healed, but he's touched by God himself. Jesus wants to touch you in an inward place that you might think is too filthy for God to have anything to do with. 
This mind-body-spirit connection is real and necessary. Jesus loves our bodies and touches us inwardly. He is not just an idea. It's an inside job. It's the Holy Spirit within us. And Jesus is the king for just, for just, just, just this job. He's not just an idea. The local church is God's plan for your life. But what if the local church is cutting you off from the life of God? May it never be so, but we must remain vigilant to root out the oppressive forces that we will invariably bring into even this space because we're sinners, all of us, and we bring it in here. Only the gospel can can free us to be honest about things that need upheaval, both personally and socially. So there's the leper's crisis. Continue in obedience to the law where I'm not really sure if God would heal me or spread the good news. And this is the interesting part. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you do not tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer, because now he can see, because he's healed of leprosy. Otherwise he couldn't go. But now Jesus says, go show them that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, (laughs) this is a little bit of obedience. Do you know that Jesus will heal us even with the knowledge that we will continue to sin? Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, (laughs) spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. I would submit also that if you want to come to Jesus, don't be afraid of the lonely places. He's there too. You may have some lonely places in your heart where where you just feel cut off from God. It's a lonely place. Jesus went there. He was cut off before you and sequestered to the lonely places. And he's there calling us. Frederick Buechner has a great quote here. What do we take on our journey with Christ? We must, we must take the knowledge of our own unendingly ambiguous motives. He saves not just the godly you, He saves the mixed bag of sin and hopes and hurts and healing and all the mess that we are as humans. He saves that and he brings his life, his vitality into that. But you gotta be honest. We are at a point of crisis here because Jesus' truth and power and love have interrupted our parties with ourselves. They've drawn a line into the sand between good and evil, hate and love, right and wrong, and they have delivered us unto him. Fulton J. Sheen says, The distress of modernity is the result of a fear-ridden flight from the cross of Jesus Christ, a reckless reluctance to look back to the salvific sacrifice on Calvary. The consequences of that choice envelop every area of human life. See, Jesus is calling. There's a king and there's a kingdom and there's a moment of crisis. Your life is like a timeline, right? Wherever you are, there you are, yes? And where, what is God trying to do? Come down into it. And what does he do when he comes down into it? He does it by a cross. Coming into your timeline, wherever you are, wherever you're hurt, you're not too young, you're not too old, you're not too rich, you're not too poor. Jesus is calling you always. It doesn't stop because he doesn't stop. Because the new covenant is finished. 
In a sense, it's stopped, but in a sense, by stopping, by the finality of the cross, has set forth his love and power, acceptance and union with us forever. There is, I would submit, a crisis in the throne room. He always says there's no crisis in the throne room, but I'm not talking about the throne room of God. I'm talking about the throne room of your heart. There is a crisis in the throne room always, and I don't want to put you uptight. I don't want to make you worry. I don't want to make you think that, oh my gosh, I'm not loved, or I need to get right, or I, I, I shouldn't feel good about my relationship with God. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that in this crisis, Jesus is calling And his calling is the very empowerment to lift you out of whatever present crisis that you're in or see you through it. And in a sense, seeing you through your valley of the shadow of the death is the very lifting out of it, right? You can't go around it, gotta go through it. That's the reality. And Christ was the first perfect human, the only perfect human to realize, I can't go around it, I gotta go through it. And when he goes through it, it cuts him off to the lonely places. It has him having no head, no place to lay his head. And finally, it puts him to death on a cross. And yet that's not the end. The cross, the crisis becomes the instrument of redemption for us all. I want to say now that in my own life, I've believed wrongly in a lot of ways. I've clinged to things, and that's hurt people. That's hurt my wife. Sometimes that's hurt my kids. Sometimes that's hurt, and it's cut me off and for some season of time from my friends, my brothers, my sisters, and it grieves me deeply. But that's not the end. See, the tomb is empty. Christ has overcome, and I have a hope I have a hope that as surely as he has lifted me into this measure of personal revival, that that personal revival will work its way out socially. That Jesus doesn't just stop with me. It's not just like, you know, Jesus is my little pencil protector that I just carry with me in my own little personal relationship. He saves us personally, micro, to affect the macro. And in this church, we are in a measure of revival Always, because Christ is alive. Christ has come. Christ will come again. Let's pray to him now. Father, we thank you this morning that you have overcome. That in a sense, in a very real sense, in a sense that we can't even see, but we know that we know that we know by faith, we live in your overcoming power, your overwhelming power, your abundant power to deliver us, to find us with empty nets, to find us with full nets, to find us thinking that we are healed and sick and realizing that we are sick and ready to be healed. You find us in all arrays of circumstances, and yet your kaleidoscopic grace pours on us all. We thank you that you have created within us the capacity by the Holy Spirit, to receive your word, your gospel, your Jesus again today. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts as in the time of rebellion. Lord, we live rebellious lives. 
but you, your grace and your mercy are, is new and fresh every morning. Help us to live in you, Jesus. And we will live. In Christ's name we pray, amen.